as we're thinking about Mother's Day, this is one of my favorite texts as we uh, look and explore, not just about mothers, but what it means to leave a heritage of faith. Now, I don't know, if, how many of you in the room have seen the movie Unbroken? Anyone seen that movie Unbroken? Uh, it, was, it came out last year. Um, it had An- Angelina Jolie directed the movie. And it's about a guy named Louis Zamperini. Now, I don't know if you'd ever heard of the name before. Uh, I was actually surprised the first time that I I saw the movie preview because I knew the name. Uh, I had uncovered it several years ago when I was doing some research on something about an organization called Youth for Christ. And there was a guy that had spoken there named Louis Zamperini. And I didn't know the extent of his story until I really looked into Unbroken. And it's about uh, Louis, who was an Olympic athlete. He also was a soldier. He was in a, a, a bomber during World War II. Two, and they were around the Japanese island of, at the time, occupied uh, island of Nauru, and they were shot down, um, they crashed, and he ended up surviving uh, in a raft for 47 days, along with a few other people. Many of them actually died, and he, um, after he was rescued from this raft, I mean, 47 days on a raft, that's just incredible, first of all. And then he ended up going into a POW camp where he just endured some very harsh mistreatment. He had the guy in charge that just had it out for him. They were trying to break him. And, and the idea was is that he was unbroken. And he went through this and survived and actually was rescued, uh, freed uh, from that camp, ended up coming back to the United States, got down on his hands and knees, kissed the ground like many do who have been POWs or fought uh, in a war. And uh, the story ends with his family hugging him. But the story was incomplete, and many different people who were familiar with this story were a little frustrated because the, the, the movie was actually based on a book, and the book doesn't really end there. It actually begins to chronicle what happened after he got back. And what many people don't realize is that when he came back to the U.S., he was, he was just going through a very hard time like many people do who have seen war. Um, he, he was wrestling with his inner demons. He became an alcoholic. He became verbally abusive to his wife. And, and, and his story just started to go down until he ended up going to a Billy Graham crusade in Los Angeles. And it was at that Billy Graham crusade that God touched his life and changed him forever. And he ended up becoming a Youth for Christ speaker. He would, uh, he would share the gospel all the time. And a lot of different people who were familiar with the story were really frustrated with Jolie for leaving that part out. And she was even asked, after she, uh, she was getting interviewed about it, she said he, you know, his faith was one of the biggest things in his life. Matter of fact, I think that he wanted to be remembered more for that than he did his other story. And, and I look at him, and you hear his children talk about him, and he left a heritage of faith. And yet, he had an amazing story, but yet he considered that, in some ways, inconsequential compared to knowing Christ, his Lord. And he wanted to leave a heritage of faith behind, not just a great story about someone who endured such hardship during World War II, but he wanted to leave a heritage of faith. Now, we all leave some type of legacy in our lives. We even saw a video early on talking about leaving a legacy. What kind of legacy are you, do you think that you're going to leave behind? I mean, think about it. What, what is it? We're all going to leave something, intentionally or not. We're going to leave something. I mean, think about the people that we've interacted with, those past relatives, those deceased aunts and uncles and grandparents and parents, people that you knew a long time ago, how they influenced you. They left some type of legacy, good or bad in your life. Now, the Bible talks a great deal about leaving a legacy. God wants us to leave a legacy of faith. Did you know that? You know, that's why he created parents. In Malachi chapter 2, God talks to the nation of Israel. 
It might be Malachi chapter 2 or chapter 3. I can't remember off the top of my head. But he says, God brought man and woman together and put a portion of the Spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. God wanted to create and make his name to be known to the next generation. Matter of fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which was known as the Shema of all Israel, this was their star-spangled banner, this was their national anthem, this was their pledge of allegiance, all rolled into one in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. And they talk about this huge theological statement about who God is. And then in the next verses, directly, it says, And you shall teach them to your children. It wasn't just that God is great, but it was now you need to pass that on. You need to pass the baton on to the next generation. Now, many of us are recipients of great heritages of faith. Others of us are not. This whole Christian thing is brand new to you. You don't know what to think about it. You have no clue what's going on. You're trying to feel your way through. And if that's the case, then praise the Lord that you are here. And for those that are recipients of heritage of faith, you have to make sure that you are passing the baton on to the next generation. Now, your, your children might be grown out of the house. You might be a single parent. You might be an old parent. You might be an odd parent. You may not be a parent. But the principles that we're going to look at today are applicable to all of us that we can see how we can pass the faith on to the next generation. And you may not have kids, but I guarantee that you have youth that you are influencing. And we need to make sure that we follow through and, and so that we don't get disqualified. I don't know if you've ever run in a relay race in track. I, I used to, uh, many pounds ago, I was a track athlete. Um, and and I, I remember being in a relay race, and it was this critical time you had between point A and point B when you're running a relay that you have to have that baton. And if you cross out of your lane or you drop the baton, it's a DQ. You're disqualified. You're out of the race. We have to make sure that we pass the baton on to the next generation. Because God will, God will, and I promise you this, that if you are a believer in Christ, that you seek to follow him with all of your heart, that you are praying that you, God will help you leave a legacy. Whether you have messed it up until now, it's not too late. It is not too late because our God is the God of hope and he is the God of the impossible. God takes the impossible and makes it possible. It's one of the things I love about the Psalms where it says he is able to make streams flow in the desert places. That's what our God is about, about transforming hearts and minds. And it's not too late that God will take and use you. Matter of fact, one passage I want to encourage us with, besides the passage we're going to be delving in today, is from Deuteronomy chapter 7. I don't have this on the screen for you. You can listen in. But it's in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. And God's speaking to the nation of Israel. And he says this, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God honors. When you start a legacy, you might be the recipient of a legacy. You need to make sure that you fulfill it, and you might be the first one holding the baton at the starting line. Whatever it might be, you need to make sure that you fulfill it, and you love God, and God will make sure that you fulfill a legacy. Did you know I am, in this room, I am a recipient of a legacy. I'm a pastor, but when I was doing some family research, when my family came over to the U.S., the first person born in the United States was a, was a man named, uh, actually, James Lightfoot Fleming. I don't know why he's named Lightfoot. I must have called him Lighty. That was his nickname, probably. But um, what I found out about him, he was a reverend. He was a pastor. And I think God has been honoring that through the generations. 
And, and parents, you are the greatest disciplers and influencers of your children, whether they're young or whether they're old. You still have that power. And I'm privileged. I'm a, I'm a recipient of that. My, in fact, my mom's here today. Uh, my mom is here today. Yeah, you can applaud for her. Um, and to know that many of us, I know that many of you in the room have prayed for her, um, and it's been a remarkable to see. Uh, she's come through that. She just saw some chemotherapy to go through, but the doctor said she's one of the 25% that uh, survive uh, pancreatic cancer. So, Mom, I'm glad you're here to have another Mother's Day with us. Um, and you could pray for her because she asked for prayer because I'm her son. So um, she needs a lot of help there. Some people are nodding. Yeah, that's right. He needs, he needs prayer. But we're going to talk today, and we're going to see the keys for leaving a heritage of faith. But before we go any further, let's pause and ask for God's blessing on our message time, that he might open up our hearts wide to receive the truth that, uh, of his word that we might apply to our hearts and our minds. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, you are the great God. You are the God of the impossible. You are the God of hope. You are the God of second chances. You are the God of U-turns. You are the God who makes all things new. You are the God who makes streams flow in the desert places. Lord, you are the God who loves us so much that you came near to us by assuming the flesh of man to identify with us. Lord, you didn't leave us in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our, our destruction and of our darkness and the mess we've made in our lives, but you are there. You are the ever present help in time of need. Lord, we know that the name of the Lord is a strong shelter, a strong tower. Uh, Lord, your name is a rock for each one of us. And we come before you today asking you, beseeching you, begging you to speak to our hearts and our minds and direct us on how we might pass that baton of faith and we might leave a heritage of faith for the next generation for your glory and our joy. And all of God's people said, Amen. So let's jump into this wonderful, wonderful text. Now let me, let me set the stage for you. Um, we're, we're in the book of 2 Timothy. Now 2 Timothy, there are two books, uh, Timothy and, uh, and there's 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Timothy didn't write these books. They were written by Paul. Paul the Apostle, uh, who had, uh, was a, basically a, had been a Jewish um, Pharisee, and he had been converted, uh, transformed, and now he is uh, planting churches. And in, in the midst of one of his church plants, he in, um, meets this family, and either they were converted under his ministry or had been converted by one of the other apostles or someone else. We don't know, but we do know that they came to saving faith in Christ. And it starts off uh, with, we have three different generations that you can see uh, that Paul is referring to. In verse 6, he says, For this reason, actually, excuse me, verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you. So he's seeing this, this baton getting passed from generation to generation. And he met Timothy. Now, Timothy uh, becomes a prized worker, co-laborer with him in the Lord, helps him in different churches. Uh, matter of fact, he says that there's nobody like Timothy. Paul is just esteems him so greatly. But we, we, we don't know a lot about Timothy. I mean, we get snippets here and there throughout the Scripture. We can see and deduce that he was probably a very fearful young man. Uh, he was a little bit timid. He was a little reserved. But Paul kept encouraging him, um, sharing with him, directing him, mentoring him, coaching him, challenging him. And Timothy goes on to become a pastor of the church in Ephesus. 
So he is in, which is in modern day Turkey, and he's pastoring this church. And Paul is writing to him in First and Second Timothy to give him instructions on how the church should be run, how to set it up, how to deal with problems because there's going to be problems, how to how to uh, direct different uh, groups of people within the church: older men, older women, younger men, younger women. How to in- interact with all of those different things. And then Second Timothy, this is Paul's farewell letter. Actually, many scholars believe that this is the very last letter the Apostle Paul wrote before he was executed. And these are his last words of love to this one faithful servant of God, Timothy. And he's encouraging him, and he's directing him, and he's saying, you are basically my prize in the Lord, and I want you to leave a heritage of faith, just like I'm leaving to you, just like your grandmother and your mother led to you, and this is how you can lead it. leave it. So we're going to look in this text and we're going to see through analyzing Paul's words and looking at his uh, and Timothy's life how we can leave a heritage of faith. Now, let's start off in breaking down our text, shall we? As we really get into this, we need to look at the, the first, first verse in, uh, in our text. Let's look at verse 3. Paul says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. Now, he starts off, that's kind of a strange thing. Um, I have a clear conscience. Why would he think that he wouldn't have a clear conscience? He's, he's, he's talking to something uh, and addressing an issue right away. And the issue for him, uh, many people accused him of, was compromising the, the integrity of his faith. Remember, he was grown up Jewish. And G- Christianity was considered at the time a sect of Judaism. It was called the way. It was different from it. And many saw it as a perversion of Judaism. And Paul's saying, no, this is the fullest expression of what Judaism was meant for. The purpose of the Jewish race was to bring forth the Messiah to be a blessing to the entire world. And Paul's saying, I stand with my ancestors who passed on that generation of faith, and now I am passing on the fullest expression of that faith and who Christ is. So I'm sharing that with you. He's saying, I want to pass that on to the next generation. And he's saying that um, he thanks God. He's, he's thanking him for all and recognizing the blessing that God has placed on his life. And he's saying that he's a servant of God right now. And he's saying that uh, I am the result of a heritage of faith. And I'm thanking God. I am praying and rejoicing for you, Timothy. I thank God for you, but I'm praying for you. See, the first key of a heritage of faith is this. He's showing us that we need to pray persistently. Pray for each other persistently. If you want to leave a heritage of faith, pray persistently. You may not be the most eloquent person. You may not be the best with your finances. You may not have great interpersonal skills. You might feel like you're a failure as a parent. And let me tell you right now and reassure you and everyone in this room who's a parent, there is no perfect parent. We've talked about this before. Only God is the perfect parent, and we rebel. A great example of that is in Luke chapter 15 with the parable of the prodigal son. That was a great dad. And remember, one son left and went off to be a prodigal, and the other one stayed right there. He looked like he was a Bible-believing, going-to-church Christian. And the thing that he gets indicted at the end of that passage for being self-righteous. So there is no perfect parent. Let's get that out of the way right now. No one can be a perfect parent, but all of us can be a praying parent. No matter what, how old your children are, you can be a praying parent because God, the prayers are like time bombs. They go off. They can go off in generations. They can go off in years. They can go off in months. They can go off in days. But God honors when people pray. He honors it when people pray. And we need to be praying for each other persistently. And Paul says, I thank God. I pray for you day and night. 
Now, he wasn't just saying that we have to pray day and night. It's praying unceasingly is what we see in 1 Thessalonians, is that we're to pray unceasingly. It means have a, an attitude of prayer all the time, to be cultivating that, to have set moments of time in prayer where we get on our knees and close the door away from everybody. And there's times where we're just praying as we're interacting with people in our day, where we get a, 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 a moment alone where we pray and we just thank God or asking God for help in a certain situation. Or when God brings someone to mind, we pray for them. We need to be praying for each other persistently knowing that God does answer those prayer. So he thanks God constantly, and he's praying. And, he, and we can see if we're to, we're to be praying persistently, it requires us doing this, making prayer a priority. Is prayer a priority in your life? Why is it not if it's not? There could be many reasons. Uh, it could be believe because you just don't believe in prayer. It could be one reason. It could be because um, you have a lot of shame and guilt because you haven't prayed in a long time and you don't want to go back and feel that pain and twinge of it because you know God's just calling to you and it hurts. Uh, it could be, believe, be because we're too busy. I love the, how Bill Hybels worded it. He wrote a book called Too Busy Not to Pray. And it, he says this. Uh, he says, busyness is the unrivaled archenemy of spiritual authenticity. Do you know the devil wants to get you busy? And in our world today, we are busy. The problem is not that we're, not that we're busy. The problem is, is we're busying ourselves with things in a, lot of, in a lot of times are things that really don't matter. That's the problem. We need to learn how to shut out the voices. Busyness is the unrivaled archenemy of spiritual authenticity. So we need to make it a priority in our lives. Now, how do we make it a priority? It requires us to do this, discipline ourselves daily. You know, many of us want to make a difference, and we look for that home run moment. You know, we want to swing for the fences all the time in our spiritual life. And the reality is, is the game's not always won by swinging for the fences. You might get a home run here and there, but it's getting base hits and getting on base. Even a walk counts when you get on base. You can make your way home. So it's the little choices that we make day in and day out that add up to be big things in the long run. So we need to discipline ourselves daily. And the Bible talks a great deal about this. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 through 8. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 through 8. That's page 992 in your Bible or if you a pew Bible or 1264 if you have a large print one. And in this text, Paul is writing to Timothy. Uh, and he says this. If you put these things before the brothers meaning the other believers and uh, brothers in the body of Christ, the church that he's serving, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Verse 6. Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Now, what I love about that word there is it's, it's gymnazo. It means literally to train, to work out. We, we uh, have made a meaning with that using the word gymnasium. Now, we have to be very careful when taking modern terms and putting it back, or modern things and putting it back on ancient words. But we see that even people, as they develop the term, they understand it meant to train, to exercise. So he's saying, I want you to train yourself for the sake of godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, how do we discipline ourselves? We can use the word discipline and say it ad nauseum. It doesn't mean anything to anybody. How do we do it? That's the question. 
I want to look for a moment and talk about a thing called spiritual disciplines. Now, I don't know how many of you in this room have heard of spiritual disciplines, but these are things that we do, um, or according as Donald S. Whitney, he said this, he goes, spiritual disciplines are those personal and corporate disciplines, training ways that promote spiritual growth. These are the ways that we grow spiritually. It doesn't just happen, by the way. We have to put ourselves in a place where it can occur, create that environment, doing these exercises. It's just like you don't get in physical shape by sitting on the couch, do you? I mean, really, you got to get up and move. you got to eat right. So these are those habits, holy habits of devotion and experiential Christianity that have been practiced by the people of God since biblical times. Now, what does that mean? And, and, and maybe we can get a better understanding of it. I mean, let's break it down. Uh, maybe, or maybe we can look at what Dallas Willard said, another theologian scholar. He said this. He, he defines it as this. Any activity within our power that we engage to enable us to do what we cannot do by direct effort. They are designed to help us withdraw from total dependence on the merely human or natural and to depend also on the ultimate reality, which is God and his kingdom. Whereas Bill Hybels, pastor of Willow Creek, said, he goes, it's time to make a decision. I will learn what disciplines are necessary to fuel my prayer life, and I will practice these disciplines regularly without fail. Meaning that we need to do these things. Now, what are these things? Some things such as solitude, some time alone, We're not good with alone time anymore because I think we don't like the echo and the aloneness of our souls that it brings, the emptiness that it reveals in our lives. Solitude, silence, being quiet. It's hard to hear the voice of God when we're filled with with everything else all the time. Silence, fasting. Fasting means keeping ourselves from food for a period of time in order to hear the voice of God to reveal the sinfulness in our own hearts because when we fast, when you deny yourself food, and you can fast from other things. I know some people actually physically can't do it, but you can fast from entertainment, fast from Facebook, fast from the internet, disconnect for a little bit. Some of us, I think, need to fast from food, though. And when you do, what happens is God brings those sinful things that we've been using food to keep down. He reveals them so we can deal with them, but we don't like that. See, many of us use food as comfort to keep those other things at bay. We want to we reward ourselves. We don't want to have to deal with the realities. We want to experience a pleasure. We need to be able to say no and cut ourselves off and then be able to hear from the, the voice of God. Fasting helps that happen. I'm not saying it's easy. It's extremely hard because when you do, all those things are going to come up, and it's going to be very, very difficult, but it will be rewarding in the long run. There's others, too. Fasting, frugality, simplifying our lives, getting rid of stuff. That's a great way. Mission sale. Go through your house and think about not just the things that you don't want. Think about the things that would help you simplify your life. Matter of fact, I knew of one uh, church. uh, I was talking to... uh, it was Liz Clinton. Liz, for those who don't know, she is the head of the World Relief Office here in Aurora. And she was talking about her church. Uh, they had, she did a challenge. I'm not sure if it was through a church or through something else, where she had how many outfits that she could wear. Do you remember that, Andrea? She could wear seven outfits for a month. Seven outfits for a month. For guys, that's not hard. Because <laughs> guys will wear the same T-shirt for like three weeks without bathing. 
But for women, that could be difficult. Think about that, ladies. How challenging would that be? To, to simplify and say, I don't need that. I don't need to wear this. I don't need to do that. I can simplify it. Why? So I can, can show that I'm going to be focusing more on God and I don't need those other things. Now, I'm not saying those things are bad. Okay? Those aren't the things that are bad. See, what the devil likes to do is take good things and make them primary things. And then they become bad things. So we have to be, make that aware of it. And frugality, simplicity, chastity, sacrifice, study, studying the Word of God, worship by individually and, and with God's people, celebrating the presence of God, serving God in some uh, capacity, praying, fellowshipping with other believers, practicing confession, submitting to one another, meditating on the Word of God, seeking guidance, journaling, writing that down, learning, evangelizing, taking steps to share your faith, giving financially, making restitution, and working with people who are suffering are essential to helping us in our prayer life and walking closer with the Lord. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy. It helps us also to know how uh, to intercede for others constantly. See, Paul is praying constantly, day and night. He was praying constantly for Timothy, and we need to be praying for others. How? Whenever that person or that need comes to mind, stopping and asking God to help them in the midst of their situation or praying for them, continuing to pray for them. Now, uh, I want to share the story with you, and uh, I asked permission before I could share it, but I want to share it. Christy Hart uh, shared this story a few years ago, actually just this last couple weeks, of something that happened a few years ago. Um, and Christy was in a car accident. Now, did she hit you or did you hit her? Oh, you stopped. She bumped into her. And then Christy, being a person she is, she asked if she could pray for her. And I think the woman was probably a little cut off guard, and, uh, but she invited her to church. She actually came and sat where many of you are sitting right now. She came to the service. That was how many years ago? Three years ago. And uh, every once in a while, Chrissy would continue to call, and as God would bring her to mind, would pray for uh, this woman and, and different things. And, and, but she couldn't get a hold of the woman, one woman answering the, the, the phone. Uh, and then just this past week, two weeks ago, uh, received a message from her, and she said, I, I wanted to contact you and let you know, you asked how you could pray for me, and I, pr- I asked you to pray for me to have a husband. And she goes, I want you to know that I got married three, year, three years ago, and then I had a baby two years ago, and I wanted to let you know that I just got baptized last week. And that a praise the Lord? That's, that's to God the glory, taking a risk for the kingdom of God. See, that's praying constantly, just as God brings it to mind. It brings it to mind. Those are great. And I'm, I'm sure that editors in this room have stories like that that are a praise to the Lord. Taking a risk for the kingdom of God. So praying for one another. Interceding for others constantly. And, we, and what does that mean? Continue to come before God, bringing that request. Now, when I was young, I remember hearing um, someone tell me that if you pray for it more than once, it means that you have doubt. And I, as a young man, I was like, I wasn't, you know, really schooled in the ways of the Lord, but I remember going in my great theological mind at maybe 12 years old going, that's dumb. And I see that in scripture in Luke chapter 18, 1 through 8, it's the parable, and you might be familiar with it, you might not, but it's the parable of the widow and the unjust judge. I love this parable. I love it. And you can turn there with me if you want to. If not, you can just listen in and I'll read it for us. Uh, But Jesus is telling this story And he says this, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Don't give up. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. 
And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, I'm not going to go into all the details and things of that passage, but it's the point of persistent prayer that when we call out to God day and night, he will listen. And in, in the case of this unrighteous judge, he responded because he was annoyed. But we're not going to annoy God. We keep continuing to come to him and praying before him. God wants us to come to him night and day. Now, when we do this, then we need to understand and, and, and keep this in mind. We need to expect God to answer faithfully. Expect God to answer faithfully. I want us to look at verse 4. Look at verse 4 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says, As I remember your tears. Now, Timothy's crying because he longs to see Paul. He wants to see his friend, his mentor. He has a great fondness for him. And, and uh, Paul is writing, I remember your tears. I long to see you that I might be filled with joy. See, Paul had been praying. Now, it's interesting. When you start to pray for something, there's a few things that happen. God changes the circumstances of things when you pray. But God begins to change your perspective as well. And you begin to want that to happen. See, at first, when you start praying for something, it it, it just might seem like an object that's far away. But the more you pray for it, the more you meditate on it, the more God changes you, and you want it more and more, and you long for it. You desire it. You seek it. You want to talk about it. You want to order things to get it done. You prioritize your life for it. He begins to change you from the inside out. That's how one of the things that prayer does. Because, and we need to re- remember and expect God to answer. Do you expect God to hear your prayers? Why do we doubt so much? Maybe because we prayed things in the past and they didn't happen? Because we looked at it as, as God is a divine ATM, giving us whatever we wanted just to spit it out whenever we wanted it. That's not how prayer works. See, God wants us to be on our knees and praying and changing Because what happens is God changes us, and he changes those people. See, we hear people say, oh, they're too far from the grace of God. Usually the people that are too far from the grace of God are the ones that are closest to the grace of God. But it takes God changing their heart and their mind, and God does that when his people pray. When his people pray. And I I guarantee that there are many in this room have been changed, and people said that you were were never going to respond. It was because people were praying for you that God changed your life. We need to expect God to, to, to answer faithfully. I'm reminded of William Carey. William Carey was a great missionary to India. He was an ordinary man with an extraordinary faith. Born into a working class family in the 18th century, Carey made his living as a shoemaker. And while crafting shoes, Carey read theology in journals of explorers God used his word in the stories of the discovery of new people groups to burden him for global evangelism. And he went to India as a missionary, and not only did he do the work of an evangelist, but he learned Indian dialects in which he translated the word of God. His passion for missions is expressed by his words. I love these words. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things 
for God. Carrie lived out this maximum, maximum, and thousands have been inspired to do missionary service by his example. Of course, one of the greatest men of prayer was George Mueller of Bristol. I love George Mueller. George Mueller was an amazing, amazing man. Um, he, God was leading him to start an orphanage in, in England. He just saw these children. He was burdened. Each day as he walked the streets, he saw children everywhere who had no mom or dad. They lived on the streets or in state-run, known at the time, poorhouses. Uh, they were treated badly, abused. George felt God calling him to open an orphanage, orphanage to take care of the children, and he prayed, asking God to provide a building, people to oversee it, furniture and money for food and clothing. God answered his prayer. The needs of the orphanage were met each day. Sometimes a wealthy person would send a large amount of money or a child would give a small amount, um, received a, a, a gift or for doing chores. And many times food, supplies, or money came at the last minute. But God always provided without George telling anyone about his needs. He just prayed and waited on God. And the stories are incredible that came out of that. The children are dressed and ready for school, but there's no food for them to eat, the house mother of the orphanage informed Mueller. George asked her to take 300 children into the dining room and have them sit at the tables. He thanked God for the food and waited. George knew God would provide for the ch- food for the children as he always did. And within minutes, a baker knocked on the door. Mr. Mueller, he said, last night I could not sleep. Somehow I knew that you would, you would need bread this morning. I got up and baked three batches for you. I will bring it in. Soon there was another knock at the door. It was the milkman. His cart had broken down in the front of the orphanage. The milk would spoil by the time the wheel was fixed. He asked George if he could use some free milk. George smiled as the milkman brought in ten large cans of milk. It was just enough for the 300 thirsty children. The stories that came out of that orphanage in his life were unbelievable, especially when you consider that more than 10,000 children lived in the orphanages over the years. When each child became old enough to live on his own, George would pray with him and put a Bible in his right hand and a coin in his left. He explained to the young person that if he held on to what was in his right hand, God would always make sure there was something in his left hand as well. What an amazing, amazing story and testimony. Many great men, like Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who started thousands of ministries in his lifetime, his worlds were being broadcast over, uh, were being published all over the world in the 19th century. He was pastor of a uh, 5,000-member church by the age of 19. Incredible man of God. And Deal Moody started Moody, uh, became Moody Bible Institute and all the ministries that they started. Great evangelists traveled many different parts of the world. Both of them felt dirty in the presence of Mueller because of his deep faith and dependence on God. God wants us to focus on him and place our faith in him in regards to to everything, but especially prayer. Prayer was a regular practice for Paul, and it should be for us as well. And Paul transitions from prayer as he reflects on Timothy's sincere faith. See, as we saw, Timothy had a huge heritage of faith. As he says in verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Now, it's interesting here, dad's not mentioned. Dad's not mentioned. It's just saying your mother. Matter of fact, we know from uh, other texts, excuse me, that his father was a Greek, not Jewish. So there was a mixed marriage of sorts going on. And in some regards, we don't know if, um, if he left the family. We don't know if, he, if, she, if uh, his, uh, Timothy's mother was what we call a spiritual widow. 
meaning that she's in a, a marriage where the husband's not a believer, but she is, but she continued to pray and teach the truths of God's word to her son. Now, here it's not about pr- just about praying, but it's about discipling. See, we can see from Timothy's grandmother and mother that they disciple him, which means that they taught him what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. In other words, we are to discipline our children diligently. Discipline our children in disciple, excuse me, disciple, not discipline. You need to do that too, but disciple, that's his discipline. It's supposed to be disciple. Sorry, that's my bad. That's my fault. I put that on there wrong. It's disciple children diligently. We are to disciple our kids. (laughs) Forget it. Remember, that's what God wants, godly offspring. We talked about that in Malachi chapter 2 or in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 5. I referred to this uh, a few moments ago at the beginning of the message, and you can turn there on page 151. But it's God speaking, and he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Sounds great. It's great. Again, it's the, the national anthem. It's the Pledge of Allegiance. It's everything. It's everything. Their theme, their motto, everything about them all rolled into one. But we miss the next part in verse 6. In these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. When you go to bed, when you get up, Talk about him. That doesn't mean always opening it every single day and making him quote different things. It means letting that living part of Christ be a part of your life that overflows to the next generation that you teach them the principles and the truths of who God is day in and day out, constantly. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It should be everywhere. It should be all part of your life. We're to disciple our children, teach them the faith, and that requires us to teach them the scriptures. We do need to teach them, though. We do need to open the word of God together and teach our children. That doesn't mean you need to have a formal devotion every day, but I would heavily encourage it as much as you can, as consistently as you remember and as you do it. Because Timothy was a recipient of his parent, his mother and grandmother, teaching him the scriptures. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, just turn over a couple pages from 2 Timothy chapter 1. We read this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus. So he was taught the scriptures. He had the sacred writings. What he had, we don't know. The canon was not yet complete yet, meaning that the entirety of the New Testament hadn't been put together. But what they did have, they taught him. It could have been copies. It could have been some type of uh, taking him to synagogue. We don't know what was going on. I mean, we know that the early church often met in synagogues, but we, we know that he is being taught. He's going back and even seeing it in the Old Testament. It could refer to all of those things that are involved there. And he is being taught the truths of who God is through the Scriptures. We cannot overestimate the power of Scripture in a person's life. That is why the Word of God is central at Village Bible Church. So central we put it in our middle name. Because without the Word of God, we have nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's God's Word to us. And without the Word of God, we have nothing to stand on. 
And it's the word of God that has transcended time and generations and scholars and skeptics and have come against it time and time again. And yet, they have failed every time. They might gather small crowds around them that might laugh and scorn, but God's word will never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will never, ever, ever pass away. But will accomplish for every purpose that God has intended it. We not teach them the scriptures. We also must make sure that we pray for them, pray for our children to fulfill God's purpose. Now again, whether you have kids or not, you have, you have relatives, you have youth, you have nieces and nephews, you have cousins, you have people that you work with that have children. Pray for them. Pray for them to fulfill God's purpose. We learned about this last week as we ended our preeminent series in Colossians chapter 4, um, where Paul is writing about a guy named Epaphras. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus. He greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Basically, he's saying there, I want you to fulfill your potential that God has made you for. Don't leave potential on the table. Fulfill God's purpose in your generation. We need to pray that for our children. And as we teach them, as we pray for them, And remember, you can pray for them no matter how old they are. You may not be able to teach them if they're not in the house anymore. They might be grown. You might have grandchildren or great-grandchildren, but you can pray for them and pray for their children. You can invite them to church. You can bring them with you. You can talk to them when you're sitting around at Mother's Day meal. Talk to them. Share your faith and your heart with them. It's vitally important. I remember when I was 12, I was at my grandparents' house, and my grandfather said, I'd like to talk with you for a minute. He sat me down, and uh, put his hand on my knee, which he always did freak me out, because I knew it was serious. And he opened the Word of God, and he read from John 1.1. And I was a dumb kid. He said, do you believe this? And I went, yeah, because I was afraid. I wanted to please my grandfather. And, but I knew right then and there, that there was something serious about what he was talking about. I didn't understand it all, but I'll never forget that moment. And he left me there. He's still there. He's still alive. <laughs> but he's left that heritage and lives on in me. Because he took that moment. It was just that one moment. And he read that one passage. And it touched my heart. And again, I didn't understand the full extent of it. I'd lived a life of rebellion after that, but I always came back because I knew it was so important that he would take that time with that 12-year-old boy and he would share with me. Share with your kids. Share with your grandkids. Share with your great-grandkids. Open the word with them. Read it. Let them know this is serious. This is different. This is different. It means everything. Let them know. Let them know. Model, and what he did in front of me was a perfect man, but he modeled the Christian life. My family did. Modeled the Christian life. That's the next point. We're to discipline, disciple, disciple our children diligently. It means we need to model. See, notice what when, when Paul writes to Timothy, he said, your sincere faith. Sincere. Now, the word there literally means without hypocrisy, genuine. It was a genuine participle, the opposite of a hypocritical or wavering profession. It was the real deal. 
And he'd received that from his grandmother and his mother. Paul had watched Lois's life. He'd seen Eunice's life. And now by observing Timothy, he sees that he is just like them. He had a sincere faith. We have to model the life and the truths that we espouse. We don't just say it. We have to do it. And we're going to fail. We're going to be hypocritical at times. And we need to repent and ask for forgiveness and ask God to direct our lives. What have our children learned about us from our lives? I hope that they see that our faith is real. The last thing we have to do, and this is the hardest one, we have to release them to God's care. Because at the end of the day, they're going to grow up and they're going to leave our homes. And we can't continue. I mean, we, we, our parenting role shifts. Can't always dispense penalties and threats. We have to release them to give them over to the Lord and continue to pray for them. Remember, no perfect parent, but that doesn't mean that you can stop being the praying parent. That you pray for them through their college years. You pray for them as parents. You pray for their marriages. You pray for their children. You pray for, for them to fulfill the purpose of God and pass on a legacy that God would transform their hearts and their minds. No matter what goes on around you, no matter how much they rebel, don't stop praying and continue to look to God to touch them. Well, let's look at verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Paul does not explain what this gift is that he has given to him. Most scholars assume that it is a spiritual gift that he had received. And it's, we're talking about his ordination where other people, not just Paul, but they were laying his hands on him. Uh, Scholars are a little bit divided on that. That's not the part I really want to focus on. But I I do want us us to see um, that we all, every single believer in Christ, is given a spiritual gift the moment that they come to saving faith in Christ. And God has gifted you to serve him. That's why Paul is saying to them, for this reason, I'm getting ready to leave this earth. I'm going to step into eternity. I'm going to be face to face with Jesus. I'm leaving you behind. And while you're behind... I want you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. The Spirit of God is within you and it's directing you. And I want you to serve God sacrificially until God calls you home. Serve God sacrificially. Each one of us is to serve God in one way, shape, or form, which is why he has given each person who has received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior a spiritual gift. As long, at, along with the experiences, talents, abilities, etc., the things that we've gone through in our lives. And we're to use them all to serve God. As Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 through 11. I'd ask you to turn there with me. It's a great passage. 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, if you're in Timothy, your 2 Timothy, it's just a few more books back. Flip through it. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 through 11, Peter, by the Spirit, writes, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Let me go back over that again. I heard some pages rustling. I want you all to see this. As each has received a gift, each one, without exception, has received some sort of gift. Some have received multiple gifts. But every one of us in this room, no matter what your background is, no matter how much education you have or do not have, no matter what choices you made, if you have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, he has given you a gift 
to serve him. And you have a purpose. He's not done with you. He has a reason. Something that he wants you to do for him. And it could be something behind the scenes or it could be something magnificent. I don't know. But you need to make sure that you ask God to help you fan that into flame and do what it is he's made you to do. To serve one another as, God's, as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. I love that part because you're going to get tired serving. We're all going to get tired. We're going to deal with frustrating people. We're going to deal with difficult personalities. We're going to deal with people that don't appreciate us, overlook us, say things that they didn't intend that hurt. But we need the strength that God supplies in order that every, in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now let's bring this thing into the hangar. How do we do that? Let's get real practical. First of all, it means taking a look in the mirror. It takes a look in the mirror. Are you serving the Lord? What's your excuse? I heard a man named David Ring. Anyone ever heard of David Ring preach? Anyone heard of David Ring? David Ring, amazing guy. Um, and he has, what, what does he have? I forget, Reuben. Yeah, he, he's got, um, or is it cystic fibrosis? Cerebral palsy, that's it. He's got cerebral palsy. It severely limits him and causes him to contort. And his speech is slurred. And, and he got up in uh, Moody Church at uh, Founders Week and he said, I have cerebral palsy. What's your excuse? He says, I'm serving the Lord. I'm preaching to thousands of people. And I have this major issue that has affected my life, affects my speech, affects my travel, affects everything about me. And yet I'm serving the Lord. What's your excuse? We don't have any. We don't have any excuses. We need to take a look in the mirror and ask ourselves, are we serving? Why aren't we serving? I'm not saying you can't take breaks. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, but is your heart to serve? And are you willing to serve? Now, here's the second thing. Not only it requires us to take a look in the mirror, it requires us also to take a risk. Whenever you step into something, it's going to be risky. You're going to deal with people that you don't know exactly maybe the language they speak or their background or their experiences. But take a risk. Some of the best things have happened when people take risks. Christy took a risk to pray. That's a risk. Someone took a risk to talk to you about Jesus. I remember another brother, a friend of ours, uh, Andy Besick. Maybe many of you know him. He worked a lot on our uh, lower level. Uh, he's working at a camp now in Indiana. And he talked about being a college student. And he was at the beach for spring break. And someone approached him um, with a track. Freaked him out. He had some questions. And he actually shut the, the guy up with his, his uh, questions. But it stuck with him that someone would be brave enough to do that to talk to him. Take a risk. Talk to somebody. Open yourself up to serve. Engage a different culture. Invite someone over to your home. Don't apologize for what you have and what God has blessed you with. Use it for the glory of his name. Take a risk. As Bill Hybels once said, when we fritter away our one and only life doing things that don't really matter, we sacrifice the things that do matter. And when you take a risk, you're going to open yourself up to criticism. And it's going to be difficult. I remember hearing Bill Hybels, who bleeds Evangelism, by the way, bleeds evangelism. And he's taught, he uh, has this, he's really into boating. And he uh, takes these guys, unbelievers, on a sailboat with him all the time so he can evangelize with them because they're stuck on the boat. They can't go anywhere. 
So he shares with them. And he said, I invited all these guys to go on a boat with me. And next thing I know, they bring a whole, they bring in this keg onto the boat. And he's like, oh, no. And he goes, man, they use some of the most filthy language. And he said, and they told some of the dirtiest jokes. Some were really funny. <laughs> the whole crowd starts laughing. He goes, but many of them came to know Christ through that. Because I continued to open myself up and take a risk. And many were transformed. It took years for many of them. But he opened himself up. Take a risk. God will honor it. God will honor it. Look at verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. He's referring to the power of the Holy Spirit, which means this. If we're going to serve God sacrificially, we need to know the resources that God made available to us. Remember that passage I just read in 1 Peter with the strength that God supplies, which comes through the Spirit of God working in us. We have to know the resources. As, as Peter, uh, Paul is writing to Timothy, he goes, I know you're naturally fearful. I know you're fearful. You're afraid. But God has given us a spirit of power. Power. Love and self-control. That is the spirit that God has placed within us. God has placed a piece of himself in you. And it's a spirit of power. We need not give in to fear. I love 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Meaning that God, we don't need to be afraid of the devil any longer. You know that? Remember, remember the uh, TV show, and we're, we're wrapping this up here, but remember the TV show uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Remember that? It was special to come on every year. And the beginning of it, it had the abominable snowman, the big teeth, and then the one elf who was like this major misfit and wants to be a dentist. Remember that? And then they're dealing with the abominable snowman, and he comes out, and the dentist had gotten, gotten him. And what did he do, remember? He took out all his teeth. He wasn't a threat any longer. You know, that's what, that's what Jesus did to the devil. He's got no more bite. He can't bite us. He can't, I mean, he can kill us, but he can't hurt us. Think about that one for a bit. He can kill us, but he can't hurt us. We have to know the resources, the power that we have at our disposal. We must learn to hear God's voice and tap into the spirit he has given us, and that takes time and discipline. As Hybels wrote again, the heart and soul of the Christian life is learning to hear God's voice and then developing the courage to do what he asks us to do. Hearing the voice of God speak to our spirit, giving us the courage to step out in faith And that could be for a parent, that could be for a ministry, that could be for anything. Because remember, God is the God of the impossible. And God wants to transform and use you. He wants to use you. Why? So that we might all fulfill our destiny. Fulfill our destiny. What is yours? As we saw last week, we're to pray that we might become mature in the faith so we might fulfill our destiny. Why did God make you? Why did he give his son to die for you? So so that you would love him and be a mirror for him, reflecting his glory to the world. Not so you would sit around all day and watch YouTube videos of cats. But that you would partner with him to change the world. 
by sharing the truth of who he is, embodying his life by taking up your cross, dying to yourself and attempting great things for him. Destiny does not come by chances, but by choices. That means a deliberate choice to do what God wants us to do. Will you fulfill your destiny? Will you pass on that heritage of faith, make that baton, and leave that heritage like Zapparini did? What is keeping you from it? What's your excuse? What's, what's keeping you back? As the martyred missionary Jamelia put it, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Don't hold on to the transient things of this world. Hold on to God and his son Christ. Remember, he died to free you from the things of this world so that you might experience the joy of knowing and being known by him. Expecting great things for God means attempting great things for God. And the great things come in the little things and the little choices that we do each and every day. Let's follow Christ together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your servant, Louis Zamperini. I thank you for all of the parents that are here today and grandparents. I thank you for those influencers, those prayer warriors. I thank you for those who are uh, receptive to what you are speaking through your word, that they might take a risk for the glory of God. Lord, I pray that we all might realize the truths of your word, that we should not fear, but understand that we've been given a spirit not of fear, but of of self-control, of power, love, self, love, and self-control. Lord, help us to tap into the, the the power of the Spirit within us, that Your name might receive glory as we seek to do Your will, as we seek to live out this Christian walk in the midst of our hectic schedules, in the midst of our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, uh, with our friends, with our neighbors. Lord, help us to live out the truth we espouse, and to be faithful and fulfill your purpose in our generation that we might leave behind a heritage of faith for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.